John chapter 6, if you want to grab a Bible, flip open to John chapter 6. Today we close out our series that we're calling Neighboring. And in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He responds with, love the Lord with everything you got. Love the Lord with every part of your being. And then flowing out of that, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And so through this neighboring series, we've been talking about what it would look like if we would actually obey Jesus and love our, our actual neighbors. It's simple, it's familiar, and therefore it's often passed over and even ignored. And we can't live like this, can we? But we can't live like this. If we're going to make an impact, we've got to do what Jesus in his genius tells us to do that would be of the utmost importance, that is uh, the greatest, and that is to love the Lord with everything and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we're in the fourth and the final week of our neighbor series. And so how is it going? How's it going? How are we doing with filling out that card every week that's inside of your river guide, the, the block map, and, and writing down your neighbors and your your neighborhood might not be like a grid, just like that little box map there for you, but you're getting to know your, your neighbors and, and know their names and know a little bit about them and, and begin to, to, to serve them. What, what steps are we taking towards obedience? Are we introducing ourselves? Are we learning names? Are we planning a party? Are we intentionally hanging out on the front stoop instead of the back Deck? Are we, are we taking neighborhood walks? What steps are we taking forward in obedience? And, and the call today is to finish this thing by just telling you to, to, to do something, right? To, to, to get started. So at my previous two houses that I, I've lived in, uh, we've been just hooked up with a really great neighbor arrangement. In both places that we've previously lived, we've had doctors living uh, immediately next door to us, and not like a PhD in astrology, like something useful, like uh, an MD, right? And so for a parent, that's, that's very comforting. And, and uh, at some point, both of these doctors at some point had come up to Becky and I and said, hey, if anything ever happens, you just come knock on our door and, and, and let us know. And they had no idea, did they? Who they, were, who they were saying that to. They had no idea the history of, of my children. And uh, I can't even think how many times we, we walked up to their house, knocked on the door with a, a bloody kid and said, so what do you think? Stitches? No stitches? I, I mean, I was just like a, it was a pretty good arrangement, I, I got to say. Now, if you're like me, you probably want to do something back, right? You want to pay it forward and, and help them back. And, and have you ever wondered, like, okay, so how, how could I pay them back? How could I be a good neighbor in return? I mean, I can't say I'm a doctor, so if you ever need anything, right? I can't say I'm good with mechanics, so if your car ever has trouble, just come to me. I can't say I'm a good plumber, and so if you have a leaky faucet, I can't say I got this garage full of tools, and so if you ever need to borrow anything, come up to me. I mean, the best I've got is um, I travel and speak to teenagers, so if you ever need somebody to scream at your kid, you know, just let me know and I got you, right? So that's all, that's all I got, right? So today what we see is, is Jesus taking something as unimpressive as myself and, and using it to make a, a really, really big impact. And so John chapter 6, 1 through 14, and if you need a Bible, there's some right here in the seats. And if you don't have one at home, 
that you can dust off, take this one home, and, and, and use it. So let's read it. John 6, 1 through 14. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of Jesus, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for, for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten to their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments of, uh, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. You heard that story before? Famous account of Jesus feeding 5,000. This is one of the most familiar Jesus stories, but there is more here than, than meets the eye, and so let's chew on this a little bit more if we can. This miracle is re- recorded in the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then here in John. And so from time to time, what we might do is fill in some, some details from the other gospel accounts outside of John 6 here. And, and one of the, the details that we need to, to fill in here is that this all takes place in this village called uh, Bethsaida, right? On the northern side of the, the, the Sea of Galilee, east of the Jordan River where it flows into the sea in this little area called Bethsaida. And the other gospel accounts say that this was a desolate place. And, and Jesus brought his disciples there on purpose. And as we saw last week, at this point in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus has kind of been bouncing around by boat to different places along the Sea of Galilee. And he's teaching and he's healing. I mean, it was just absolutely incredible what Jesus is doing. And obviously crowds are catching wind of this and they're coming to to see Jesus, maybe to be healed by Jesus and, and just to be around Jesus. Now, Mark will tell us in his account that just before coming to Bethsaida, that the ministry of, of Jesus was, was so busy that, that Jesus and his disciples, it says, they didn't even have the leisure to eat. Anybody ever feel like that? Like, especially parents, like, I'm, it's so crazy, I can't even, like, put a muffin in my mouth right now. It's just, life is crazy. And that's how it was for these guys to a degree that I, most of us can't even fathom. And, and also, we see that the, the disciples of Jesus had just returned from doing ministry on their own apart from Jesus for the very first time. That Jesus had sent them out, if you remember, in, in groups of two to, to cast out demons and to, to heal the sick. And now they come back and they're eager to talk to Jesus about all that they had seen happen, all that they had done and, and, and taught. And so according to Mark, Jesus says to the disciples, right when they come back, he says, okay, here's the deal. It has been crazy, right? 
So here's what we'll do. Hop into the boat, and we're going to go to this desolate place to rest. And so they get into this boat. They push off into the sea until they pour it in Bethsaida, where we're at today. And they arrive at this place that was supposed to be the desolate place so that they could rest. As Jesus said, what happened is they get there, and it tells us that many people had run ahead around the sea by foot to get there before Jesus and the disciples so that they could see them. And they got the city all worked up in a frenzy. Jesus is coming. This Jesus is coming. Be ready. He, he's coming. Now imagine you're all ramped up for vacation. Right? I'm going to rest. I'm going to lay out on the beach and just do nothing but nothing. Right? And you get there and your boss meets you at the hotel lobby and says, I got some projects for you. I mean, just like they get there to rest, and bam, they're all ready to go. No, no, no rest. We got to work right now. All these people want to be with you. Now, despite the crowd, however, we do get here in John chapter 6 that at some point they did get away to a desolate place, a nearby mountain or or a hill, likely a grassy hill, because it tells us here that there's grass for them to sit down. And we don't know how long they're up there resting on the hill, but here's what we do read. In, in verse 5, we read that as they're together, the disciples, apart from the crowds, so they did get some desolate time, they're together, and then Jesus looks up, and this large crowd is coming towards them. And so the, the crowd's patience has worn thin, right? Their, their, their patience has worn thin, and they said, we got to, no, we're just going, we got to go we got to go see Jesus. We can't wait any longer. Now, I want you to feel the intensity of this moment. This is, this is so important. I'm not sure that it looked like just the, the cute kids' Bible stories that we always read about. You know, like, oh, Jesus feeds 5,000. How cute is, is that? I mean, imagine you're on the hill, Jesus, and the other disciples, 13 of you up on this, this hill, and you look up, and there's this mob coming towards you. And, and verse 5 says, how many people? It says, 5,000 men sat down. So just the men are counted. So if you include the women and the children, 10, 15, maybe even upwards of, of, of 20,000 people. So if you're sitting on that hill, what are you feeling when you're like, ah, vacation with Jesus? And you look up. And upwards of 20,000 people are coming towards you. Would you say, praise God, all these people are going to be ministered to? Or would you say, oh my goodness, <laughs> that's a lot of, that's a lot of, I would be overwhelmed, right? Would you be overwhelmed? I mean, I would be absolutely overwhelmed. Now sit in that for a minute, okay? You're on the hill. You're overwhelmed. All these people coming. Now, what, is, what does Jesus do next? This is almost comical. He looks to Philip. <laughs> if you're Philip, right, there's this overwhelming crowd coming towards you. Jesus looks at, at, at Philip. Now, what is it about Philip that would cause Jesus to single him out? Well, back in the beginning of the book, in John chapter 1, uh, verse 43 and 44, here's what, here's what it says. The beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says, Jesus decided to go up to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. So Philip becomes a disciple. It says, now Philip was from where? From Bethsaida, the, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
So this overwhelming, I mean, crowds like we've never seen rushing towards us, right? Unless you sell out stadiums and, and sing your concerts or whatever. An overwhelming crowd is coming towards you. And he looks to Philip. Why? Because it's Philip's hometown, right? He's like, it's, it's your hometown. Now, does desolate place describe your hometown? Anybody? <laughs> like where, where I'm from, desolate place. You know the song, Where I Come From? You know that song? You know what I'm talking about? I won't tell you how I know that song, but where I come from, there's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, a lot of front porch sitting, right? And that's why you live in Boston right now, because you're like, I'm tired of sitting on my front porch. I want to I I do something, right? And, and, and Jesus says, all right, Philip, homeboy, what are we going to do about this crowd? Now, again, remember that the disciples are coming off of doing ministry for themselves, apart from Jesus being right there with them for the very first time. The practice of Jesus was to do it and to let them watch, to, to be there with them and let them do it, and then to send them out to do it without him, right? That's how we do discipleship, right? And that's what Jesus did. So they just come out from first time doing it on their own without Jesus being right there looking over their shoulder. And all of this is a part of Jesus' training program, And so they're coming off of Jesus saying, all right, boys, it's time for you to own this thing. And now they're up on a hill and upwards of 20,000 people are rushing towards them. And Jesus goes, Philip, this is your hometown. What are you going to do? Verse 5 tells us that he asked Peter, okay, so where are we, not where am I (laughs) to buy bread? He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people are going to eat? And then verse 6 says he does this to test Philip, right? So he's saying, okay, okay, Philip, I'm refining your faith right now. I'm, 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 I'm developing you. I want you to step up in your faith. I want you to own this thing. I want you to trust me to move. He looks over. He says, all right, man, so you're the homeboy, right? What are we going to do? And, and here's our very first takeaway from this passage. And I want to give you a handful of these. Our very first one is this. So if you're taking notes, this is number one. Is, is we've got to take ownership of our neighborhood. We're talking about neighboring. We've got to take ownership of your neighborhood, whether that's a block, whether that's a dorm hall, whether that's a, a, a complex you live in or a cul-de-sac. I don't know what it looks like for you, but we've got to take ownership of our neighborhood. Now, don't try to outsmart me and pull an Alan Jackson and say, well, I don't come from there. This isn't my hometown, right? I know many of you aren't from Boston originally, but you're not off the hook. Let me show you this. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. This is so, always hits me every time. Uh, Jesus has has gone on this little ministry trip. He goes away, does some ministry, and he comes back. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, he returns to Capernaum where his ministry was temporarily headquartered. And notice what it says, Mark 2, 1. It says, and when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at what? It was reported that he was at home. Wait, wait a second. Is Capernaum Jesus' home? Is that where he's from? Not even close, right? His hometown was Jesus of Nazareth, or I guess you could say, well, he was born in Bethlehem, and so Bethlehem maybe spent some time of his life down in, in Egypt, maybe Egypt, but Capernaum? It's like not even close for him. I mean, I've been in New England for over a, a decade now, and I remember the, the first time I went home uh, to visit 
my family down in Atlanta, and I referred to Massachusetts as home. My mother was nearby, <laughs> and so I, somebody, I met somebody while I was down there uh, for the holidays, and this person says, so where are you from? And I said, from Massachusetts. And my mom was like, oh, no, he didn't right now. Are you serious? She, said, she steps in. Actually, he's from Georgia, with an insert southern accent. He's from Georgia, y'all, right? And all of my kids have been born in Massachusetts. My wife is from Massachusetts. I've been here for like over a decade now. And I still get asked for my family. Like, it feels like every time I go. So this is a great dinner table discussion. So hypothetically speaking, Josh, if the Atlanta Braves and the Boston Red Sox were in the World Series, who would you choose? Who would you root for? And I'm like, the Red Sox, right? I mean, I just want you to know I would be cheering for the the Red Sox. Now, Capernaum, yet it was reported that he was at home, right? Jesus, you're not even from Capernaum. What are, you, what, are you, what are we talking about here? It was his temporary location for a season, not for a lifetime, but he makes it his home. He says, I'm going to settle in here, and for whatever length of time that I am here, I am going to let this be home, and I am going to take ownership of this neighborhood. I'm not going to pull this. I am from there. This is going to be home for this season, and I'm going to make an impact. And he does this here just outside of Bethsaida, too. John's account of the story uh, doesn't show this, but the other accounts show that, that Jesus looks at the crowds while they're rushing upon them, and he looks at them with compassion. And it says that he has compassion on them for they are like sheep without a shepherd. You've heard this before? And so what does he do? He becomes their shepherd, right? He says, well, they're without a shepherd. Well, Josh, theologically speaking, you're not a sheep unless you're actually a part of the family. And so he's not, no, he says, I'm going to be their their, their shepherd, right? I'm going to appoint myself shepherd over them. What if we looked at our neighborhoods that way? What if we looked at our hall that way? What if we looked at our apartment complex that way and said, I'm just going to own it. You know what? They're not asking me to be their shepherd, but I'm going to be chaplain of this apartment complex. I'm going to be chaplain of this neighborhood. I'm going to be chaplain to this hall. I'm going to look at them with compassion, and I'm going to say, I'm going to be their shepherd, transliterated pastor. I'll be their, their pastor. What if you appointed yourself pastor of your neighborhood? What if we felt that weight upon our shoulders? Right? We looked throughout the course of this series at Acts 17. Paul says, listen, you need to understand that God determined your allotted period and the boundary of your dwelling place. That means that God drew up your plot plan. God's the one who coordinated the lease agreement that you're in, the housing arrangement that you're in. And you are there on purpose for a reason, even if it's just for a season and not a lifetime. You need to take it and own it. God puts you there to make an impact. Imagine if we all live like that. So, Philip, what are we going to do? And Philip feels the weight of the question Verse 5, where are we going to buy bread? These people got to eat. There's a lot of them. They're going to be hungry. It's getting late, right? Verse 6, Jesus knew what he was doing, right? 
And how does Philip respond? Under the weight of all of that, verse 7, he says, uh, Jesus, 200 denarii would not even buy enough food to get these people just a little bit to eat, right? And one denarius equals one day's wage. So if you do the math, 200, eight months worth of, of work. It says, you could work for almost a year, and we still wouldn't be able to feed these people. Jesus, this is overwhelming, and you're calling me to, to help feed these people, to impact these people? Josh, you're calling me to shepherd these people, to care, to pastor my neighborhood? I mean, seriously? You feel the, the weight of that? Do you feel overwhelmed by that? I feel overwhelmed by that time and time again. But you know what? It's good to feel overwhelmed sometimes because it brings you to this place where you humbly come to realize that I cannot do this, but Jesus can do that. You humbly and desperately look to the Lord with faith, realizing that, okay, you you can do this. And he does do this, doesn't he? You know the story. He does it in a, a huge way. And, and we see some parallels between God's provision here and God's provision in the wilderness with Moses and his people. That's why back up at, at verse 4, look at it again. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And so John's gospel account records three Passovers that Jesus in his three-year ministry spanned. The first and the third are in Jerusalem. This one is where? Up in Capernaum up on the mountain with the disciples. And the, the last Passover supper was in the upper room just before he would be betrayed and then nailed to the cross, the, the crucifixion, which means that this is about a year uh, away, a year prior to that. And, and, and Passover, uh, is, as you understand it, is, is when the, the angel of death passed over the people of Israel because they put the blood of the lamb above their door and they would celebrate this annually until the last Passover one year later from this, this meal here. And, and, and John mentioned this interesting. It's just kind of like he slips it in there, doesn't he? Like, oh, the Passover it was around that time as well. And perhaps he, he's doing it because he's, he's trying to parallel what Jesus is about to do and the magnitude of what Jesus does and the magnitude of what happens with God and Moses on the mountain and how when there was this great gap between how much food was needed and how much food was actually available in the wilderness, this great miracle of God, manna comes. And here, there's a, a great miracle of God. And, and so Philip would be overwhelmed by this task. But God was going to do this miracle that has never been seen before in the likes of it, the exception of in the wilderness with with. Moses. God has done it before in that regard, and he's going to do it again in Jesus. And isn't that the whole point of the gospel? The the whole point of the the gospel is what we can't do, Jesus does, right? And so Philip's sitting in the way to this and saying, oh man, I I couldn't do this. Jesus is like, you're right, but, but, but I can. And let's have a gospel approach to everything that we do. We want to be a church that's centered on Jesus and centered on his gospel or the good news. And so we need to even have a gospel approach to how we approach our our neighborhoods. We say, you know what, I can't do it, but I trust that Jesus can. I don't know that I can make a massive impact, but Jesus through me can. Just like I can't live the life 
that he calls me to live, but Jesus did, and so I trust in him. That's, that's the gospel. And this brings us to our, our, our next takeaway that I, th- I think is really important, and that is that you do not have to neighbor alone. You don't have to neighbor alone. First of all, as we just saw, you've got Jesus, right? You, you've got Jesus. And so if your approach to neighboring is apart from Jesus, you're going in the wrong direction. You've got to have Jesus very much involved in, in your neighboring. You've got to keep Jesus central. He's got to be the central motivation. He's got to be the central method. He's got to be the central power. You've got Jesus. Second of all, you've also got other believers. And by God's grace... Some of you, many of you, have believers in, in close proximity. We're, we're pretty much a neighborhood church. And so we've got believers in close proximity to us. And, and for Philip, who steps up? Who steps up? We read on, and, and Andrew steps up. He's like, I found this little boy. And what do we know about Andrew? Go back to John chapter 1, verse 44. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And so who steps up? Another homeboy, right? Another townie steps up. And it's likely that that Andrew's like, yeah, this is our town. we got to feed these people, right? We want these people to come and to be with Jesus with no hindrances whatsoever. This is our town. And so Andrew gets to work. It's like Jesus is having this discourse with Philip, and Andrew's like, oh, man, this is my town, too. I'm going to make sure something happens. And so Andrew's out there. He's trying to find somebody. You got food? You, got, you have food? Anybody? Anybody got some food? And, 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 and so how can we take the, the great commandment seriously? We, we've been talking about this the whole time. How, how can we take the great commandment seriously to, to love God and, and to love our neighbors? And he's saying, these are, these are my neighbors, and I want them to love God. And I, I'm doing both here in this moment, and, and, and I just want them to, to meet Jesus. And so the, the, the crowd arrives to the place where Jesus and the disciples are. And, and Andrew is just scurrying around saying, I've got I've to do something. I'm, I'm a homeboy. I gotta, and, and what's the best he can do? He finds this little boy with a bag lunch, right? And he comes up to, to Jesus and Phil. He says, okay, so I got this boy. He's got five barley loaves, which would be like loaves of bread for poor people. He's got five barley loaves, and, and he's got two fish here. I don't need to do the math for that, right? You, you can figure that out. You're, you're smart. That's not going to cut it. <laughs> 20,000 people. But Jesus is in complete control. And so what does he do? He takes control and Jesus says, okay, verse 10, he says, everyone sit down. And other accounts will say he divides them up into groups of 50. And he takes the loaves and the fish. And he... Thanks God for them. He prays. Let us bless the food. Right. Now, my kids have trouble keeping their eyes closed while they're praying, you know? And they're always like, well, how'd you know my eyes weren't closed, Dad? Because so, I know your history and I'm peeking on you and nobody's eyes closed. It's pretty bad. But I imagine that Jesus says, all right, let's pray for the food. You got 20,000 people around and everybody's got only one eye closed and the other one's like, what is going to, what is Father, thank you for this abundance of food. And people are like, what? I don't, what food, Jesus, are, are we talking about? And then it says he, he breaks the loaves and the fish up, and later we see that there were 12 baskets involved for 12 disciples. And then comes this amazing miracle. Let's not let it be so cute that it's just like, oh, yeah. 
It's an amazing miracle that he gives the food to the disciples and they start to, to, to distribute the food and they're passing it out and it just keeps coming. I just always wanted to look in the basket and see what that looked like, you know what I mean? Just, just keeps coming and they never reach the bottom of the, the basket. And verse 11 says that the people had as much as they wanted. Verse 12 says until they had their, their, their fill. So they had so much food that there were even leftovers. Jesus is the bread of life. Right? This is an amazing story. It's an amazing lesson within an actual uh, set of events that took place. And there are so many things that we could observe and apply here. I mean, there's so many things. But, but the last one I, uh, that we spoke about is that we don't have to neighbor uh, alone. That, that Jesus does the heavy lifting. That, that, that too, he uses... Other believers, he uses Philip, and he also uses Andrew, and then all the other disciples step in. But then they also have help from this local boy. And what do we know about this boy? Nothing. We know nothing about this boy. It doesn't appear that they sat him down and said, okay, um, before we partner with you, tell me about your church. What denomination, again? And what is the belief system that... Tell us about your theology. No, it was just, we got this young boy. He just wants to step up. And Jesus says, okay, cool, I'll use him. Sounds good. He wasn't one of the disciples. But we get here, Jesus can use anyone. Jesus can use anyone. And some of the best resources in you becoming a good neighbor are the neighbors that are already around you, Christian or not. You have some neighbors that aren't even Christians that are really good at planning a party. You're like, I know, right? 1 a.m., I can't go to sleep. You got some neighbors uh, around you that are better at developing a a plan to care for the family down the road who's facing cancer as a family. You have neighbors who can do that better than you can. Cooperate with them. Cooperate with them. You don't need to be the hero on the block, right? Jesus is going to be the hero of this whole thing, right? And so you being a neighbor means that you got neighbors that aren't even Christians that you can cooperate with to serve the neighborhood, right? To, to care for people. And when you do that and you cooperate with people around you, 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 you say, I'm not a separatist. I don't ever want to be the church that's got like the fall festival and the, everything's opposite, like separate. Well, they got this holiday. We're going to do this instead, right? We want to be the church that just cooperates with the neighborhood, that's why we're plugged in with the farmer's market. We're plugged in with the Main Street Association. We just want to cooperate with the, the, the people that are already here doing good work, right? Let's not be separatist about everything. They're good people, and there's this, this boy here. He says, can I help? Can I help? And Jesus says, that sounds, sounds good. And if you really love your neighbors, you're going to do whatever it takes, Right? Do whatever it takes. Now, back in Luke 10, when Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to, to, to minister to the cities where he would eventually stop, he's like the, the street team that goes ahead of him, he sends them out um, to, to minister, and he sends them out, and he tells them, he says, when you go, I want you to go ahead to these cities, and, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to look for sons of peace, is what he says. He says, I want you to find... Uh, 
people of peace. Find a person of peace, a person who will welcome you in, who cooperate with you. Well, Jesus, what does their theology need to be? No, we don't hear that. Just find somebody who will welcome you in. And he uses here Philip and Andrew and Jesus and this little boy who is just this person of peace. He's just a a son of, of peace. You don't have to neighbor alone. You don't have to neighbor with just other Christians. I mean, it should be expected that all Christians are living out the great commandment to love God and to love your actual neighbor. But there are other people who love your neighborhood as well, and you can serve alongside of them, and they can come really close to Jesus without even being a Christian. And maybe, just maybe, that in and of itself and that cooperation will speak to them about the Lord. But you don't have to neighbor alone. You can't be separatist all the time. Now, let's make a a few more closing observations and then applications. Here's one to get us moving at the very end of this series. Here's one to get us moving. And that is, just get started, right? Can I just be simple and obvious when it comes to neighboring? Just get started. Wasn't it a good thing that the, the boy didn't overthink it? Anybody guilty of overthinking things sometimes? Andrew's running around trying to find somebody who's, who, who has some food. Now, how many of us would have overthought it? We would have been like, well, got a little bit of food, but I mean, for real. I mean, look, this is a massive crowd. Certainly not enough. I'm not going to step up and say anything. But we, we just got to start somewhere, right? Just start somewhere. Like, we, I have some food. I have something, right? Get started. My fear is that we're going to brainstorm this neighborhood thing to death to where we don't actually do anything. You ever seen that, like, in your business? Like, we got all these brainstorm ideas, and we're like, how are we going to execute? And then, and then we just don't do anything. It just falls apart. Do something, right? Do, do something. Always trying to think about the best scenario and how we can work it right. And then the burden wears out, and we don't do anything at all. Could there have been a better scenario than a little boy? Yeah, absolutely, right? There could have been somebody like heading home from the grocery store on the way to the family reunion. They bought like a whole grocery cart full of food and Jesus was like, yeah, it still wouldn't have been enough. Still need Jesus, right? I love, I love this line from this pastor, Andy Stanley. Here's what he says. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for all. So often we're thinking like, what can I do to serve them all and to get it done? Just do something for one. Right? At least get started. And if you regularly do this, these interactions over the course of your life, they're going to add up. And you can look back at the end of your life and see all these lives that were touched. I mean, how many times have, have you heard the girl in the Miss America pageant say something like, I would like to solve world hunger? Anybody ever heard that? Yeah. It's like every time, right? Imagine if for every time they said that, they instead just fed one family. <laughs> like actually did something, Right? They probably feed a small country by the time, you know, it's amazing. Stop talking about doing big things to the neglect of doing even just some little things. Do the small things and let Jesus multiply them into big things. Jesus is in the business of multiplication. Jesus is in the business of taking just a little bit and making a lot. Just a little life, just a simple life, just a plain life and doing something crazy with it. I mean, you look at the heroes of the Bible, and they were guys who were unimpressive, ladies who were not all that impressive, right? 
Shepherds, lots of shepherds, because they were like the lowliest. lowliest right? Prostitutes. People that others looked at and said, eh. And Jesus says, let me do something amazing with this life, and then I'll show you who's really, who's really in control here. So step up and just get started, right? Here's another, another observation. So where do we get started? Right? Where, I mean, okay, get started, but, but where do I get started? Give what you have, right? Just like the little boy, okay, uh, here's what I got, not much, but give whatever you, whatever you have, right? And, and Jesus multiplied what he had, right? Just give what you have to give, whatever it is that you have to, to, to give. Okay, so I've got kids, so I don't have much time. Okay, so the options are you could wait till you have a lot of time, or you could continually give a little time that you have, and then it adds up. Well, I don't have much money, so I can't really help people. You give a little bit, right? What does Jesus do with the woman who gave just a little bit, just two copper coins, the widow's might? He, he stops the temple. He says, everybody, stop what you're doing. Right here. He has a party at this, these steps, right, where he was sitting. Just a party and just says, are you serious? It's a big deal about this, this woman. It's a showstopper at the, the temple. Or you could say, oh, I'm not the neighborhood doctor, or I don't have a lot of skills. I can't really do much. Let me, let me share with you a beautiful story from, from just down the road in our neighborhood here. It's so beautiful. With this lady in our church who for, for one Christmas, she decided, I'm going to bake for my neighbors. How can I impact my neighbor? I'm just going to bake, bake for them for Christmas. And so... She did a lot of baking, worked really hard, bagged up all of her, her little treats, and she stapled a little Bible verse to these bags. And on Christmas morning, just down the road, she walked around her neighborhood and just put these little treats on the stoops of all of her neighbors. And she did not, because she didn't want to interrupt the Christmas morning festivities. But she does, when she gets to this one neighbor who's one of her close friends, she knocks because she had close enough of a relationship with this person that they wouldn't mind even on Christmas morning her knocking on the door. And so she knocks on the door and nobody answered the door. And so she says, well, somebody's home because the car's right there and I hear something inside. So she says, I'll just go around the block, keep doing it, I'll come back. So she goes around the block, drops off more treats and she comes back. And as she's coming back and approaching the house and that neighbor's son runs out of the house and gets in the car and takes off. And normally this boy would say hi, but he didn't say hi this time. Now, a few weeks later, she's hanging out with this, this person who lives in the house and says, here's what happened on, on, on Christmas morning. And the lady said, well, so here's what, what happened with our family on Christmas. We were at a family gathering and our son just was a mess. Just got really worked up and went home. And he tells us that he had gasoline and had poured it all over himself. And it was about to light a match when there was a knock on the door. It's a Christmas miracle. The person goes around the block, he opens up the door, finds some cookies in a bag and some scripture, and didn't go forward with his plan. God help and is still alive today.
because a woman said, I, I got a little bit. I can do something. I mean, I, I could make some cookies for my neighbors. She gave what she had, and our Lord multiplied it into a miracle of saving someone's life. Give whatever you have, and with faith, just trust that God's going to do something with it. He wants to do something with it. Imagine if we all had just little things that we did to serve our neighbors, to love our neighbors, to care for our neighbors on a consistent basis and just pray, God, do something with this. Touch some lives with this. Just get started and and give what you have. And then just the last thing we have to observe is that when we do that, Jesus gets worshipped. Look at verse 14, the last verse. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, Jesus, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So this miracle takes place, and in the end, who is worshipped? The boy? Wow, he gave all he had, just gave a little bit. Were the disciples, I mean, did you see how they just kept going with it? Just kept coming? No. Who was worshipped? Jesus. They said, he is indeed the prophet we've been looking for. He's come to the the world, and Jesus is is worshipped. Be neighborly. Give what you have. Get started. Share your story. Be ready to give reason for the hope that you have. And that is Jesus. And watch what he does. Watch what he does. Let's pray. Father, as we close out this series on neighboring, we are just so thankful that we don't have a God who cannot sympathize with our weakness. But that you came to this earth and you lived in our shoes. You were tempted as we're tempted. You know our pain. You know our struggles. You know our, our feeling of, 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 of just wondering what people will think and our feelings that we, that we come overwhelmed with. You know all of it, God. Well, you know it intimately because you came and became our neighbor. Thank you that we have you as the example, you as the centerpiece. And thank you, Lord, for how you, you take our, our measly efforts as believers. And you do something great. Thank you for how you even take the, the things that people do that aren't even following you themselves and you turn it back around somehow for good. And God, I pray that we would be a people who, who really do love you with everything that we have. And flowing out of that, we love the people you love, the people that you in your sovereignty have placed right around us, not by mistake, but on purpose, for, for a reason, so that we might love them well. We might be the hands and feet of Jesus to these people. And so God, I close today by asking if, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, would you stir their hearts where they turn in faith to Jesus and they recognize their need for you. You came to earth and you lived the life that we couldn't live and you took our punishment for sin upon yourself on the cross even though you didn't deserve it. 
that if we would trust in what you have done as our substitution, we might be made right with you, that you resurrected to life as King and Lord. And you reign supreme and you call us to come up under your authority. So I pray that people would follow Jesus. They would receive that loving act of you becoming our neighbor and in faith begin to follow you. And God, I pray for for your people in this room. Lord, we want to be commissioned out today to go and to be the neighbors that you've called us to be. Help us to never lose sight of this simple, familiar command to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I'm just so confident that when we do that, we're going to see great things take place time and time again. So help us to be faithful with the little commit these things to you. We commit our neighbors and our neighborhoods to you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.